Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday, and he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. You guys are going to get better at that. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll get better. Uh, but you know, this, this truly, as the, the song, Oh Happy Day, started with, it says, the greatest day in history. And, and this truly is. I mean, Christmas is great. Don't get me wrong. I love Christmas. But if Jesus had been born and then bailed on us because this earthly life was too hard. Now, now think about it from his perspective. From all eternity past, he was enjoying being in the throne room of God, and just being with the Father, being one with the Father, just being worshiped by the angels, having everything. To coming down to earth being born in the most humble of circumstances. Isn't it funny how with the Christmas story, we always you know, kind of romanticize this and we're just like, oh, beautiful Jesus in a manger. That's a feeding trough. <laughs> I mean, covered in animal slobber. It was not sanitized. They didn't have like, I don't know about you guys, but when my first son was born, we just felt almost awkward about bringing him home because, you know, the hospital's so sterile, everything's so perfect, and we're like, ah, oh, what, what's going to happen? He's going to get sick and all that, and here's Jesus, and they're like, yep, good enough. But <laughs> lay him down. But, you know, he, he's, he's God Almighty, and then he comes down to earth, and, and not only was he born in humble circumstances, but, but he was mocked. He was scorned. I mean, there's, the scriptures are just full of evidence that, that he was just, he was rejected. And, and that's even before the cross. And, and he was humiliated. Even his brothers didn't believe in him. And, and, and so he, he would have had every reason to say, you know what? I thought this was going to be cool. We're, we're going we're gonna to save humanity. That'll be great. But you know what? No, no I'm done. And he could have just gone home and, and said, that's enough. If that had happened, you know, Christmas would be kind of useless. It really wouldn't have meant much if he came down and then took off. And then think about it, too. If we had Good Friday without Easter, meaning that if he went into the grave and remained there, our lives would be hopeless. You know, Paul said it to the Corinthian church. He says, if in this life alone we have hope in Christ, meaning that if our hope in Christ only goes until the point that we pass away and then there's nothing after that, there's no more hope, there's no more life, there's no resurrection from the dead. If, if that's the end of our hope when we die, then he says we are of all men the most pitiable the most pathetic, that if the resurrection didn't happen, then we are the saddest people on the planet. Why? Because we give of ourselves, we give of our lives, we surrender everything to the Lord, and we say, here it is, you have it, I have no ambitions of my own, you take everything, Jesus, it's yours. And if it ends when we die, Paul's like, we're, we're above all men, the most pitiable. Um, but uh, this truly is the greatest day in history because Jesus finished the work that he came to do. He said on the cross, it is finished, and he proved it 
by raising from the dead. And so if, if we go back, if we go way, 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 way back to the beginning, which is essentially going from the greatest day in history to the worst day in history. Well, why? That's because the, we're here in the Garden of Eden where we find the need for a savior. Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. And really what God had given them is an entire planet's worth of food, of abundance, of blessing, of animals. I mean, just the beauty of creation. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, of how many of you guys can, like I, I drove along Lake Coeur d'Alene just yesterday and, and just being constantly impacted by the beauty of this creation and this is the tainted, nasty, fallen version. This is with the curse. If you can imagine how incredible Eden was, and God gave them all of that and said, knock yourselves out, enjoy. And he said, but there's one thing. And isn't it funny how the human heart is really that deceptive where we think that the one thing that we can't have in this entire planet is the one thing we need to make us happy. <laughs> that's how deceptive our hearts are. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. Of course, you know, a lot of us try to throw Adam under the bus and blame him for, you know, the curse that we're dealing with. But you know, let's be honest, he was the best of us. And he, he lasted a lot longer than any of us would. You know, we probably would have been running for that tree the second that he put it up. Um, but they, they ate of the tree that God told them not to, and as they did so, they separated themselves from the living God. And in their wake, all of us were also separated from God. At birth, through sin, we were all born with sin. It's something that came with the package. We didn't ask for it. We didn't sign up for it. We didn't want it, but we got it, and here we are. But... It was in that garden that God, immediately after they had sinned, God gave us the first prophecy of the Messiah to come, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God immediately had a plan in place, which, I mean, if you stare at that scripture and scratch your head for about a second, you might realize, if he already had a plan in place, maybe that was the plan all along hang on a second, and there's sometimes where people will look at, at the birth of Christ as like a plan B that God's going, man, I don't, like I gave them the law, they were supposed to be able to be perfect, what more do they want? And then they couldn't do it, and so God comes up with a backup plan and says, well, okay, I'll send my son, I guess, and then, no, it was the plan from the beginning. Right in the garden when they sinned, God gave the first prophecy of Jesus Christ coming to the earth to save us. And uh, we'll read it, in, it's in Genesis 3.15, and this is God speaking to, to Satan, to the serpent, after he had deceived Eve and, and Adam ate along with them. Uh, but God's speaking to Satan and he said, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So what this is talking about is uh, Satan's strike against Jesus 
through the cross. We know that it was Satan himself that entered Judas to betray Jesus. And, uh, and, and, and I'm sure Satan's thinking, all right, this is my chance. I'm gonna take him out, and if I kill him, then you know, he's not gonna be able to save the Jews. And I'm sure he thought what many of the Jews thought is that Jesus was there to kick out Rome, to set up his, his kingdom there on earth, and uh, didn't realize that, wait a minute, no, there's, there's two comings of Jesus Christ. And the first time, he was there to lay his life down. And Satan gave him exactly what God knew he would. And in doing so, he, he ended up giving his own crushing blow. You know, in Revelation chapter five, uh, John the apostle was, was taken up to heaven and, and he's witnessing this scene in the throne room where a scroll is brought forth, which is essentially the, the title deed to the earth. You know, this was given to Adam and Eve to, to work over the land, to, to bring it into submission. All the animals were under their authority, like the whole earth belonged to him. And, uh, and, and through eating of the tree, he forfeited it. It then went into the hands of Satan. And, and Satan in the Bible is called the prince of the power of the air. If you remember when he was trying to tempt Jesus, you know, he said, you know, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus didn't stand there and say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. Jesus knew that at that time and, and even right now, you know, that, that Satan has a level of authority and ownership of this world. And so this scroll is brought forth and, and John says, and we looked around and and there was nobody found in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth who was worthy to, to take the scroll, to open its seals, and to look at it. And John says, and I wept bitterly. So why would he weep like that? Because do you guys see the pain and the suffering and the destruction going on in our world right now? I mean, every day it's ramping up. And, and this is with the power of the Holy Spirit restraining the evil in the world. Can you imagine when the Holy Spirit is taken up out of the world and, and, and Satan has full authority and, and, and evil men are just left to, to go on unrestrained? I mean, it's, it's tragic to even think about the pain and the suffering and the misery that will come through that. And so because of this, John, at this scene of, of, of seeing that there's nobody who can take this scroll back, he just weeps bitterly. And then he says, and then I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he came and he was found worthy to open the scrolls, which, you know, then as you read through the rest of Revelation, you know, sets in, in, into effect all the events of the tribulation, which culminates with him restoring this and making a new heaven and a new earth. But, but he was the one who achieved that victory, who earned that right through the cross, through his perfect life of being that spotless lamb, the only one who could ever stand in the place of sinners. And then there's a, right after this in, in Genesis 3, 21, just a very succinct verse that says, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. 
There's not a lot of fanfare or explanation here. He just very simply, very matter of fact, says that he had to provide a covering for their sins. And, and what had happened is after Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden here's this knowledge comes that they're naked and they're going, wait a minute, we need to cover ourselves. And so they find these fig leaves and you know, they, they cover themselves with fig leaves. And really what this is, is uh, it's an illustration or a comparison to us trying to cover our sins with good works, with being a good person, with religion, with just going to church, things like that. That's, that's essentially putting on fig leaves. I don't know how many of you guys have been around fig trees much, but we had a fig tree in our yard growing up. And uh, you pop the leaves off, and uh, they've got little hairs all over them. And, and they're not soft, silky hairs. They're very abrasive. And then in the veins of it, there's, you, you split them off, and, and, and there's a milky, white, milky substance that, that's in there that's an irritant to our skin. It, it makes us itch. So think about putting something, trying to cover your privates with something that's scratchy. <laughs> And it's like, wait a minute, it's, I'm surprised, you know, they didn't just try to use poison oak, <laughs> which I'm sure is a product of the curse, so it probably didn't exist. <laughs> but I mean, you, you look at that, and, and it's the perfect picture of us trying to cover our sins and trying to make ourselves right before God on our own power and saying, well, here, God, I'll, I'll work for you. Watch what I'm going to do. It's not going to work. Okay, God, I'll, I'll just go to church a bunch. He's like, how's that going to benefit me? I don't need people in church. You know, God is infinite. He, he's not somebody, sometimes we portray Jesus as like this, this sub celebrity that just needs fans in order to feel good about himself. That, that's not him. He, he's okay. He doesn't, we don't add anything to his being, to his existence we're the ones that receive all the benefit in this relationship. And, and, and so, uh, these skins that were covered, that, that covered them, first of all, God had to provide it. They couldn't, they didn't do it on their own. Uh, but number two, they didn't, they didn't appear out of nowhere. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, something had to die. And a life had to be taken in order to provide them with adequate coverage. And from this point forward, you see Israel having to sacrifice because of their sins. Uh, Hebrews 9.22, and, and then in, in chapter 10 as well, it tells us, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then it says, but in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So as they would bring those sacrifices year after year, there was a reminder of sins because that blood from those bulls and goats and, and all the different sacrifices that they would bring, it didn't take their sins away. It simply covered them. And when you cover something, it means that what is underneath is still there. And Je Jesus didn't come to cover our sins. He came to take them away. 
to, to, to remove them as far as the east is from the west, to drown them in the deepest ocean. And I like as one pastor put, he drowns our sins in the deepest ocean, then he puts up a sign that says no fishing. <laughs> you can't go get them. <laughs> but this was all done to show that there is a need for a greater sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that could take away sin, not just cover it. And you remember what, what John the Baptist said when Jesus presented himself in, in his first uh, earthly ministry appearance. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't cover the sin of the world, he takes it away. So there we are in that garden. Now let's fast forward to another garden. This time it's not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And here we find the promised one, the Messiah. And he's sweating great drops of blood. He knew what he came to do. He knew what he had to do. But the weight of it was unbearable. And yet, Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the joy that lay before him was the fact that through his sacrifice, once for all, that he could pave a way for us to come to the Father, for us to be with him for all of eternity. There was one way and one way only, and he knew that his obedience would lead to life for us. When he was in the garden there, he was praying and basically begging the Father, if there is any other way, Lord, please, let's take that. If there is any other way, and it wasn't just you know, the, the physical pain of the cross, which I'm sure he wasn't looking forward to, but have you guys ever dealt with the guilt of your sin laying on your shoulders? And just think that he took all sins, past, present, and future, upon himself, and that was laid upon him. And not only that, but in that brief moment of history, he was separated from the Father, something that had never happened from eternity past and never will happen, eternity future. And, and, and the weight of that, he was just begging the Father, if there's any other way, let's take option B. The whole point was there is no option B. This was the only way. And so he laid his life down. And in the first garden, the battle was lost. In this garden, the war was won. The temptation that took Adam, which was ultimately the temptation to serve himself and to to deny God, was conquered by Jesus who chose to deny himself and serve God through obedience. And through this obedience, the grave could not hold him. And then we're gonna, we're gonna get into John chapter 20. If you brought your Bibles, you can open them to that point. But uh, this is uh, Mary Magdalene. We find her, along with the other women, uh, and uh, they arrived first light, which is, you know, we had our, our sunrise service, which we only assume it was sunrise because you couldn't see it out there. It got lighter. So, you know, we're just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's the sun rising. Uh, but uh, that's why 
that we meet on a sunrise service is because that, that's when the ladies uh, showed up at the tomb. Uh, the embalming process that, that they were putting Jesus' body through got interrupted by the Passover and, and the Sabbath, and, and so they, uh, they had to, uh, to go home, but they came back at the earliest possible moment, uh, and that's where, where we find her, and it says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple, so this other disciple that he keeps mentioning, that's him, he's, he's the writer, this is John. Uh, it says, they went out heading for the tomb, the two were running together, but the other disciple an outran Peter and got to the tomb first. I love how he's just rubbing it into Peter. He's like, <laughs> for all of eternity, this is any, Jesus said that, you know, not one dot of the I or cross of the T is gonna be missing from my word. And he's like, for all of eternity, I beat you, Peter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So, can you imagine their grief, their loss, and now their confusion of going, what in the world is happening? We thought we had something going here. These guys gave their entire lives, their, their livelihood. They walked away from their businesses. You know, Peter and John both being fishermen, they, they left their boats. They, who knows who got them, but, but they took off. And, and they left everything for Jesus. And, and they thought that they knew what was going on. They thought, I'm sure very much like Satan thought, that Jesus was going to set up us, his throne on earth, that he was gonna kick Rome out of Israel, and that everybody was gonna be happy, and, and they were gonna be with him, sitting on his right hand and his left. And they really had in their minds uh, an idea of how this whole thing was gonna work out. And then he died. And they had no, not only just the, the standard grief that you have when somebody close to you passes away, but also the letdown of their hopes, their dreams, their desires, like all of this. And they're, now his body's gone. They're so confused and, and going, what in the world is going on? And yet, Jesus had clearly told them that this would happen. On multiple occasions, Jesus told the disciples that he would be betrayed, killed, and that he would rise again. Even the Pharisees remembered him saying this. That's why they asked Pilate to put guards at the, the tomb. Because, you know, and this is a quote from them. They said, sir, we remember while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. So Jesus' enemies remembered his words, but here in the midst of the trial, the disciples' grief overwhelmed them, and they had forgotten the truth. And it's easy to forget God's promises when we're suffering, when we're in pain, when we're grieving. 
when it feels like you're praying and your prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing right back down on your head. I've been there where you just feel that, that God's a million miles away and he can't even hear me right now. But the great thing is, is Jesus' faithfulness didn't stop just because the disciples forgot his promises. The word tells us that if we are faithless, that he remains faithful, that he can't deny himself. If he has given us promises, he will fulfill his promises. And then as we continue in John 20, 10, it says, then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, he said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So Jesus called out Mary's name. He knew her name, but he didn't just know her name because he had connections with her while he was here on the earth. He knew her name from before the time that she was born. As, as David said to the Lord, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And he called out her name. And, and we think of when Jesus said, I'm, I'm the good shepherd and, and my sheep hear my voice and I, I call them out by name and they hear my voice and they won't follow another one because they know my voice. And that's exactly what you see here with Mary. She hears her name being called and she turns around and just immediately knows that it's him. But Jesus knew the pain, the regret, and the shame that she would feel in her life. And he also knew the overwhelming joy that she would experience when she received the love and the mercy of God. She had been forgiven of so much. And, and that's why she was the one that Jesus was speaking of when, when she was just weeping and, and washing his feet with her hair and her tears and and uh, Jesus said of her, you know, she has been forgiven much, so she loves much. And notice that even when the, the other disciples had, had left the tomb in confusion of just not knowing what's going on, and they went back home, that Mary was still there because she had been forgiven of so much, and so she loved him so desperately. But Jesus didn't only know Mary's name. She, uh, Jesus knows every single one of our names. And he knows everything about us, absolutely everything about us. And yet he loves us more than anyone on earth ever could. You know, there was uh, a time when I was young in ministry and I had read the book Harvest, which if you haven't read that book, check it out. It's an incredible uh, collection of testimonies of Calvary Chapel pastors and uh, just the, the work that God had done in them 
And uh, one of the guys was Pastor Mike McIntosh. And uh, when I was first really walking with the Lord and after reading this book, you know, these guys were kind of like heroes to me. More, more than like any sports hero or, or rock star or anything like that. Man, I was like, if I could get a chance to meet those guys, oh, that would be so cool. And, and when I had moved down uh, to Visalia and, and was spending some time there, I got a chance to do some pastor's conferences and, and was working with a couple of these guys. Uh, I wasn't speaking at the pastor's conferences. I was just serving. But, uh, you know, uh, we're there, and, and I see Pastor Mike McIntosh, and I, I go up to him, and, and I said, hey, how you doing? And he goes, Eric, it's good to see you. And, and I realized really quickly, I'm not wearing a name tag. Like, Mike McIntosh knows my name. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And almost immediately, it's almost like I just felt a tap on my shoulder. And God whispered to me and said, Eric, I know your name. And I was just like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so for one, I was convicted of, oh, okay, I'm, I'm worshiping these guys. I'm exalting them to a place that they don't belong. And, and, and then the second was just the fact of, wait, someone so much greater than just a pastor knows my name and loves me. He, he can count every hair on my head, which is, you know, for most of us, it's changing every day. So. <laughs> or as my, my son pointed out yesterday, is there's, there's a lot more uh, salt than there is pepper in there. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but in Revelation 2, uh, Jesus says to the one who conquers that I will give to him a white stone. And on this stone... A new name is inscribed that no one knows except for the one who receives it. So for those of us who come to faith in Jesus, he's going to give us a new name. And when he gives us that name, we are going to know exactly why. It's like this unspoken language where we're going to look at him and go, I know what you mean. And everybody else is like, wait, what? You know? But it's, it's really like, uh, with Nathaniel in, in the story in John, when it talks about him coming to faith in Jesus, he was a skeptic. And, and he didn't, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? You're telling me that this is the Messiah that you found him and he's from Nazareth of all places? Come on. And, uh, and, and so he shows up and Jesus says to him, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he just instantly says, you are the son of God. You are the promised one. And I'm sure his friends were sitting around going, did I miss something? <laughs> like, what? He just said, I saw you under the fig tree and, and you're worshiping him as the son of God when you were just you know, so skeptical? Like, what happened here? Well, it was something I'm sure that if we fill in the blanks, it was probably where Nathaniel had this moment with the Lord Maybe it was where he was crying out and saying, how long are we going to be under this Roman rule? When are you going to send your son, the Messiah? When is this going to happen? And then Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. You know, or maybe it was just one of the most impactful moments of his life. Maybe it was when he first truly cried out to God and called out to God. And Jesus said, I was with you. And it just, it broke him. He knew. 
And so, you know, maybe Nathaniel's little stone's going to say fig tree or something like that. <laughs> and not the one that Adam and Eve had, but a different one. But uh, for each one of us, he knows us so intimately that he's going to give us a name that nobody else is going to understand, that, that only he and I are going to get, or he and you. You know, you guys are going to look at each other and go, yeah, okay, I gotcha. I'm with you. That's how much he loves us. That's how intimately he knows us. In John 20, 17 and 18, we'll, we'll close with this. Jesus told her, don't cling to me since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told him what he had said to her. Mary had the proper response. She, she went and she told people. You know, if God has touched you, if God has done a work in your life, you don't, you don't need a doctorate in theology to go tell people about Jesus. Notice, notice what it says. It says, as she told them what he said to her. And she says, I've seen the Lord. Just tell people about, you know, what God has done for you, what God has spoken to you and how he has worked in your life, how he has changed you. That's what a testimony is. You don't need to have some crazy story about, you know, I was on 16 different drugs at once, and I, and I died seven times on the operating table, and, and then I saw the light. You don't need a story like that. You were dead, and now you're alive. You were blind, and now you can see. That's all you need. And Jesus has risen. And we have witnessed his wonderful works. We've tasted of his fruit. And our testimony can be as simple as that. Just telling people what we have seen, what we have heard, and what our God has done for us. Amen? Amen. He is risen. risen Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the gift of salvation that you gave to us that was 100% sealed and proved when you rose from the dead. God, I just pray for anyone here who has yet to receive the love and the mercy and the forgiveness that that you are currently holding out and offering to them. Lord, at no cost. Lord, I just pray that, that they would see and know and understand your love for them. Lord, and I know that if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that you have risen from the dead, that you have forgiven our sins, that we will be saved. And Lord, we thank you that the truth is is really that simple, that even a child could understand it. And God, you have called us to be your sons, your daughters, your own. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.